0: Is craig brown and welcome to passages passages is a space to explore bible passages used in churches for preaching reflection and prayer my hope is that passages will shine a unique light on texts used in the lectionary in the coming weeks our passage for this week is first samuel chapter 17 verses 32 to 49 it's the reading for the fourth sunday after pentecost also known as proper number 7 in the year B cycle of the lectionary. It happens to be the reading for June 20th, 2021. This is a very well-known text. It's a text about David and Goliath. It's a text that we typically teach to children at a very young age, but the narratives in this text are so rich and so powerful in what they teach us about God's presence and power amongst God's people that oftentimes by reflecting on this text as a child might reflect on it, we miss some of the more significant nuances of this story. So in today's episode of Passages, I want to focus on some of these larger themes that we sometimes miss. Uh, I'd like to call them perhaps adult themes, but that may connotate the wrong thing. What, what I'm suggesting is that there's some some really rich and a meaningful texture in this passage of Scripture and I don't want us to lose. And so let's take a careful look at how this text speaks to us in a more mature and a more progressive sort of way. As this text opens, we we find a contrast, really, between the living and the dead. And the living and the dead doesn't really have to do with the human beings or Goliath at the end of the story— It has to do with the deities involved in this story and their collision in this episode in 1 Samuel chapter 17. When we're talking about the living and the dead, we're we're talking about the deities of the Philistines and the Israelites. Now, the Philistines were coastal dwellers, and they lived what is today near the Gaza Strip. Uh, They functioned as uh, leaders in the manufacture of Iron And as a matter of fact, they controlled uh, an iron-making monopoly throughout the ancient Near East so that the Israelites oftentimes didn't have iron uh, for their armies or for uh, their agriculture because the Philistines would ration it to them. So a lot of the conflict between the Philistines and the Israelites had to do with this iron trading that went on. But when it comes to their deity, this becomes the chief contrast between the Israelites and the Philistines. Uh, The Philistines' chief god was a god named Dagon, who's often depicted in wood carvings. And it's a a grain god amongst the Philistines. And in Jewish theology, and especially their theology around idols, they considered um, the, the gods of all of their neighbors, the Philistines included, as uh, dead gods because they were depicted in stone or in wood. Uh, you can pick up this dead god theology in a couple places in the Bible. One is in 1 Kings chapter 18 when Elijah has the great showdown on Mount Carmel um, and really mocks the, the gods of the Canaanites, Baal, and how um, that god actually isn't living and not present. Uh, Paul, the apostle, even uh, represents this theology well in Romans chapter 1, talking about how uh, the Gentiles worship sticks and rocks in these inanimate objects. And the reason this contrast is important in this story is because when David comes on the scene in this story of David and Goliath, he makes a very important reference in chapter 17, verse 26, and in verse 36. He refers to his God as the living God. God. And this is the first time in uh, the, the Hebrew scripture that we read this term, the living God, and it's designed to be a contrast to the Philistine deity, Dagon. This living God really opens up a new piece of uh, Israel's emerging theology. It's also in this text that David employs the covenant name for God, uh, Yahweh. It's the tetragrammaton, yod He vav He in uh, Hebrew and it is this covenant name for god that's derived from the encounter of moses with god at the burning bush the notion of this story is this is that david represents this living god this deity that is present in the very midst of this story and it's a clash between this living and dead theology that's really rich here dagon exists in wood but dagon acts outside of human agency the Philistines believed that Dagon was not necessarily a force at work in their midst, but they would act and function in the name of Dagon or in the character of Dagon. not that Dagon was an actual presence, whereas Yahweh, the God of David exists in spirit and instead of acting outside of human agency, Yahweh or the the God of David acts by inhabiting human agency, becoming part of human flesh and David represents the living God of Israel. We're going to talk more about that shortly, but the key passageway that I want to focus on in this first part of the story is that this living God is active, not only in David's life, but in our life, not passive. This living God is active in our lives, not passive, And David's kind of theological vision is dynamic and vital, and it really represents this vitality he offers as this new emerging leader. God is seeking to move and work in human flesh. This is really the narrative of what it means to live in the body of Christ, that we, as God's people, are the incarnation of his spirit. And so uh, the idea of being... um, A part of the body of Christ and this living God is an important truth that opens up to us for the first time in the story of David and Goliath. There's another nuance to the story that's rich that could be easily lost when we read the story only as a children's story, and it really has to do with the source of might. Now there are several characters in here who have an an alignment around what might really is. Obviously, we could begin with Goliath. Goliath is the Philistine champion. He comes to this battle between the Philistines and the Israelites, armored with a spear. He's quite tall. If we read this story in kind of its mythological description, he's nine feet, nine inches tall. Uh, Other uh, translations of the story try to frame it a little bit more realistically that he's six feet, nine inches tall. However tall he is doesn't matter. He's just big. And there's this kind of classic taunting that goes on in the story. And it's a taunting that the, the champions will settle this battle. So rather than have the The armies wage war against each other. there will be a champion of the Philistines and a champion of the Israelites that will meet one another, and they will battle together. And however that battle resolves itself, that will be the outcome. Goliath comes out every day for 40 days and badgers the Israelites and Saul's army. Remember, Saul is the king of Israel at this point. Even though David is anointed to be his successor, Saul is still the reigning monarch. And so Saul puts up with this for 40 days. And in Goliath's framework, might is a matter of power. Might is a matter of power. It has to do with his size, his strength, his armor, his spear. Power is the primary framework of might. There's another character in this story, Eliab, who is David's eldest brother. And you met Eliab uh, a couple of chapters ago when uh, the prophet and judge Samuel came to the house of Jesse to find the new king who would rule over Israel. And the first son of Jesse that came in the room was Eliab. And God told Samuel, that's not the one. I have selected someone else. Eliab is David's eldest brother. And David encounters Eliab in this story because David's assignment from his father Jesse is to bring food and provisions to his three brothers who are fighting in Saul's army. Eliab, being the eldest brother, is one of those soldiers. When he arrives and wants to know why the Israelites are putting up with the badgering that Goliath is dishing out upon them, Eliab looks at his youngest brother David and says, why are you here? Who's, who's guarding the sheep if you're here? He's kind of making a mockery of him that David really doesn't have any place in this conversation or in this moment. The text is quite clear. It tells us in 1 Samuel 17 that Eliab's anger burned against David. Whereas Goliath saw might as a matter of power, Eliab sees might as a matter of position because he's the eldest son, and he has this position of being the eldest son. He thinks he's entitled to the might that comes with being the eldest son. And then there's King Saul, who also plays an important part in this story. He's, of course, the current king of the Israelites, and he's unaware that David has even been anointed by Samuel to be his successor. When David arrives at the scene of the battle, David, who's brought food for his brothers, leaves the food with the baggage handler at the scene so that he could go see firsthand what's going on in the battle. And this is a rich irony in 1 Samuel, because in chapter 10, we read about how Saul, the king, he hides in a pile of baggage during a moment of fear. So whereas David drops his food off with a baggage handler and moves toward the battle, Saul instead would hide in the baggage. And Saul gives David all of his armor, all of his defenses to go out and fight this battle later with, with Goliath. And David, of course, refuses. And we'll come to that more in a moment. But for Saul, might is a matter of privilege. It's a matter of privilege. So you see, there's three different paradigms, if you will, of might. Goliath, Might is a matter of power. With Eliab, might is a matter of position. With Saul, might is a matter of privilege, having the power and authority to be the king and to give his armor to someone else to use. But David, David knows his anointing. He knows that God is living. And David's framework of might and the source of might is very different, that it's framed in this God who is living, present, active, and in one's midst. He asks the question, who is this uncircumcised Philistine to mock God's people? You see, David is most potent when he points to God's power. So while he tries to make some justification for his merit to enter into this battle, he says, well, when I was a shepherd, I would have to fight lions and barrows, and I, I did all of those things. And so that facing Goliath would be no different. But there's something particular in David's recounting of those stories of fighting lions and bears to defend his sheep. It's in verse 37. He tells us that Yahweh delivered me from the lion and the bear. See, David points to the real source of his might, that while he was able to drive away lions and bears from his sheep, that the real capacity to do that, the power to do that, came from God. God. And that's really the second key passageway in the story that true might is found when we're emptied for God to fill us. True might is found when we are emptied for God to fill us. You see, this story has all the trappings of a variety of different forms of toxic masculinity. Goliath represents some, Eliab represents some, Saul represents some, but David he points to something beyond his own capacities. In other words, he is revealing for us something that Jesus will say explicitly in the Gospels, that in order to have everything, we must become as nothing. David realizes that the source of his might isn't in himself, isn't in his power, his position, or even his privilege. David's might comes from God. The final nuance of the story that I think we don't want to lose here is one of stewardship. And David, you know, as we've already shared, he was offered Saul's armor to go into this battle. He tried it on, but realized that it was not his. Now, keep in mind that 1 Samuel 17 doesn't tell us anything about the sizing of this armor. So, if you pick up any children's Bible book that has illustrations in it, it's going to show David trying to wear Solomon's, uh, not Solomon, but Saul's armor, and it doesn't fit him. It's kind of this, you know, kind of medieval looking armor draped all over his body that doesn't fit very well. Those stories do not help us uncover what's really going on in this passage of Scripture the scripture tells us nothing about the sizing of the armor. All it says is this, is David's response after putting on Saul's armor is this. I cannot go with these, he says. I have not tested them. You see, David rejects Saul's armor since they are unproven to him. What has been proven to David is his sling. And the sling was a shepherd's tool to disperse threats. So if a wolves or other threats came against the sheep while the shepherd was guarding them, they would put a stone in their sling and spin it over their head and then launch the stone toward whatever threat happened to be coming. This is the same tool David is going to use to defeat Goliath. David goes with what's been proven, his sling. He knows his sling. He knows how it works. He knows its value and he has confidence in it. And David knows that defeating Goliath is not a matter of having a better spear or a better sword or better armor. That the capacity to defeat Goliath is going to come from God. And so he goes into this battle with nothing more than his sling, and as he gathers five smooth stones out of the wadi, or the little stream that had dried up, he walks out into the field using that which he already has. David knows that the conflict set before them is impossible. The men are all afraid. They're divided against much, against each other. King Saul is a coward for listening to forty days of badgering and doing nothing. Eliab, David's older brother, is resentful. Goliath is a bully. David seeks to be a steward of that which he already has. And this is the final key passageway for us in this text. Use. What you already have for God's purposes, Jesus tells us numerous stories about stewardship and about using what we have. Use the talents that have been given with us given to us. Be faithful in small things. And what David does here is something that's very important. He defies convention. He uses what he already has. so instead of wishing and wanting for something he doesn't have, a bigger, better spear. David goes with what he has in his possessions. Use your own gifts, your own talents, your own skills. They they come from God. And to reject the things that God has already given us is in many ways to refuse God's might. You see, good stewardship is about allowing God to employ all we have. Is that risky? It certainly is. David has to go out into the middle of a field to face a well armored giant wielding a sword and spear and shield. Of course, it's risky. How can we expect great things from God if we leave nothing great for God to do? That's the risk. But in many occasions in our life, that is what being faithful is all about. Stepping in to the places and situations that we might think are impossible, but simply using what God has already given us and be faithful, realizing that God will provide whatever the outcome needs to be. That's it for this week. I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.